the bigger picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for the first bigger picture of the year when I'm in conversation with uh, political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Show Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, Happy New Year to you. Um, not necessarily Happy New Year for all of us. I mean, we, we seem to be rather freer at the moment than some of our European um, neighbours. Um, but the NHS is still, as indeed many winters before COVID, um, not exactly in the best possible state. So we've got this massive backlog, um, which was there, of course, before the new variant as well. Yes. So we have, the year has begun with, we're all used to talk of a the NHS being under pressure in winter. We're all used to the uh, the government having to deal with a so-called winter crisis, uh, things piling up in A&E. What has been unusual in this year is the fact that the the, the issues that the NHS faced before have been compounded to a certain extent by the pandemic. And a report today by the Cross-Party Health Select Committee has highlighted that the, the whilst the government has announced extra money for infrastructure investment, uh, including creating 100 new diagnostic centres, mm. they need to address staffing shortages as well. And this comes at a point in time when the third wave of uh, COVID, uh, the so-called Omicron variant, is uh, moving through the health service. Interestingly, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a consultant uh, down in Dorset at the weekend, and they were explaining to me that it's not the level of hospitalizations or the number of deaths which have been worrying people here. It's the number of staff absences within mm. the NHS, but also key public services as well. And whilst studies so far have shown that the Omicron variant is uh, milder in terms of the symptoms and less likely to result in serious illness than compared to the Delta variant, it is more contagious, so it spreads more quickly. So it might, say, push up staff absences in key areas at this time of year. And I think that this report underlines it as well. Uh, as of September 2021, uh, 5.8 million patients were waiting for surgery, including hip and knee replacements, uh, with 300,000 of these people waiting for more than a year compared to just 1,600 people from mm. before the pandemic. There are other issues as well. For example, on the NHS infrastructure side, the maintenance backlog there has accelerated. This is according to analysis undertaken by the nonpartisan King's Fund think tank. The NHS is roughly short, according to the committee, which is chaired, don't forget, by the former health secretary, Jeremy Hunt. The NHS is roughly short about 93,000 workers. And a lot of these did come from outside the UK as well, from the EU and from you know, other countries as well. But the main thing this highlights is that the NHS is not just suffering a resource issue because the government continually finds new money to pay for the health service all the time because it's one of the most uh, popular public services in the country as well but this is really is an issue of people power rather than financial power what do you mean by that well the issue is is that the government can put as much money into it as it wants but the context is that we are at the moment the government we have we've en we've gone through the pandemic with unemployment still being comparatively low but there's also comparatively 
little um, flex slack in the labour market as well. So people can't mm-hmm. really pick up these important vacancies as well. And of course, for example, there's somebody I heard about who's a, an a doctor on rotation uh, there are meant to be 21 slots uh, on their particular shift uh, there are only 13 doctors to cover that as well so there's a shortfall there of 40 percent which puts a great deal of pressure on those uh, working individuals the health foundation think tags estimated that uh, nearly 19,000 more nurses and 4,000 more doctors are required the government has made important commitments to meeting these but without the people there without the uh, mm-hmm. individuals that can be recruited into it when there are issues like this that put pressure on HHS staff and wider public services as well, there is a danger that key parts of our society could grind to a halt. Yes, of course, with the Omicron around, I mean, most of us know people who've got it. It is so prevalent. And yet almost everybody knows that most of the people who've got it are, I mean, re- not particularly badly hit, nothing like the previous um, versions of of COVID. Um, do you think the government is being too tough in insisting that people actually stay away from other people if they've if they've got it? Because that clearly is causing a problem. It's not just the the NHS at the moment, is it? We're hearing that um, or transport is um, is being affected. Lots of trains are being cancelled. Um, people are not getting refuse collections because so many staff are actually off at the moment. There are several problems coming home to roost, and one of them mm. has been. The underlying issue has been that the government's so-called employment miracle of the last decade has been built on largely low-paid, unsustainable uh, employment as well. But also the fact that we've chosen to restrict uh, immigration at a time when, in the past, when we've, say, for example, faced a shortage in NHS, we've looked abroad to bring people in. The COVID has meant that there are travel restrictions, but also the government is overhauling the immigration system as well. Uh, There isn't a significant uptake of health and care visas. One of the things that's a little bit galling about this is that when Jeremy Hunt describes the staffing crisis as being entirely predictable, you've got to wonder why is the longest serving health secretary we've ever had. He didn't do anything <laughs> about it, but nevertheless, he's in that scrutiny uh, role now. The fact is that without more people to put into staff the NHS and to meet these vacancy shortages and across all uh, public services as well. Indeed, uh, supply chain issues as well have been further exacerbated by say a shortage of lorry drivers. This is part of a wider problem that is very much affecting uh, Britain today. The fact that we are a service-based society uh, and there, this, this, isn't just, this isn't just the public services, this is you know things like transport logistics, hospitality there is no there is very little resilience at the moment and even a a mild version of the virus that keeps people at home for a few days with the flu and if people have to stay at home as well because of restrictions the government faces a choice then of even more markedly so of keeping the economy going or keeping the case numbers down and we've argued on this podcast for a while now that the economic needs of the country it's not a zero-sum game between simple GDP and saving lives. There are many consequences, as we've seen. There is a human cost of having a society that operates under restrictions. And I think the fact that the government yesterday, for example, the day before we record this, mm. removed some of the travel restrictions uh, highlights the fact that it wants to move to more living with COVID. Mm. And don't forget that this comes in the same week as the top uh, virologist has argued that we cannot simply... Uh, be sticking vaccines in people's arms every um, 
four to six months to deal with a new variation of COVID. And given what the Prime Minister has been saying about uh, the government wanted to move away from non-pharmaceutical interventions, that logically leaves us in the place where the UK government, Boris Johnson in particular, has to face a difficult choice about whether or not they do periodically shut down society or mm. have to cope with significant shortages in areas that people are going to see, both in terms of the NHS, transport, uh, other public sectors, schools, teachers, and also in the private sector as well. Or mm. if they let, if they choose to let the virus um, become something that we live with. So yes. And I don't believe that either solution is ideal, but it's, it's one of those decisions that the government has to make and they cannot simply do as they have done, rely on the vaccines in the long run to deliver mm. the solutions that they need. Yes, there, there appears to be a solution in almost every country at the moment, isn't it? Italy's insisting everybody over 50 be compelled to, to have the vaccine. But let's just go back to the NHS for a minute, because even before COVID, there was barely a winter we got through without the NHS being in crisis. I mean, as I understand it, it seems to operate on a, on a, a, a remarkably thin margin of, of safety when it comes to emergency beds. Um, unlike most other countries, they try and assume that it's more efficient to operate at near full capacity. But that means that every winter, of course, there are problems. Um, do you think that's a serious problem? I don't imagine Mr Hunt uh, well, has commented on that. There is a reason that the NHS operates at near capacity most of the time. It's because that there, if it did not, this is a point that has been made by Gordon Brown in the past is that uh, its critics would say it was wasting resources if there are large numbers of empty beds. I'm sure you, like me, remember yeah, that. But we, yes, but then, we, you know, it, there's got to be some sort of choice. And we've seen the, um, the massive disadvantage of not having that spare capacity. But then, but then again, don't forget the government was able to create the Nightingale hospitals very quickly last year. Mm. The beds weren't filled up. Um, mm. the, the decision was taken to wind those down because NHS capacity was shown to be sufficient for dealing with the first and second waves. Yes, true. Though they're building them again now. They are. And hospitalisation numbers are ticking up. And I would submit that that is still the single most important number for deciding whether or not we will have to live with further restrictions going forward. But I think the broader point in this as well is that the NHS has to exist to serve the needs of the people who fund it as well. That whilst it can be a, it's a laudable aim to ensure that a public service can function, well, it is the responsibility of uh, policymakers and NHS leaders to ensure the health service has sufficient capacity to continue to function. Given the fact that the government is raising taxes uh, this year, 12.5 billion that is largely going towards tackling the NHS backlog in the coming years, this isn't a resource point. But the government has to look across the broader piece about how its policies and the wider climate in which it operates both with the virus, but also the macroeconomic climate as well, and changes to immigration policy are going to affect our society going forward. The UK has relied for a long time on uh, imported labour, particularly to fill vacancies inside the NHS as well. If we are reforming our immigration system at a time when it's going on, or people can't travel or aren't willing to travel because of COVID, that is inevitably going to put staffing pressures on key public sectors and bodies that rely on it. The health and social care workforce has nearly 100,000 vacancies. There were large numbers of EU workers that had operated inside the social care workforce, for example, separate to the NHS outside of it, too, but nevertheless very much connected to it in terms of the overall context of um, societal well-being. The NHS at the moment is struggling to deliver more than day-to-day firefighting, but ultimately 
the government has to be responsible for finding the people to fill those vacancies that can keep us going. Because this isn't a case of empty hospital beds, it's a case there aren't enough doctors and nurses out there uh, to treat the people who need to be treated in addition to the pressures that COVID puts on it as well. Thank you very much. Good moment for us to take a quick breather. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon. You're listening to The Big Picture, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Um, so, Mike, I mean, you just talk a little bit about um, about COVID. Um, what we've got at the moment is called Plan B, I think. I mean, I'm sort of given up knowing what the names of everything is is now. I'm terribly confused. But we, you're saying, we, you know, we can't go forward um, vaccinating everybody every year, though, I mean, playing devil's advocate i mean most people are advised to have flu vaccinations particularly if you're relatively vulnerable in the winter yes but i think we're talking there about a difference between a vaccinating a particular group of people for example the elderly or those mm. who might be deemed to be vulnerable and the sheer degree of mass vaccinations the government has employed in the last 10 months or so to deal with covid the fact is that the government has the government's one a uh, successful bet, and it was a bet, don't forget, was backing several successful vaccine candidates. And the government has, has just relied on, say, and, and I think they, they've been justified in their in their faith in this, to say, for example, the booster campaign to keep the number of deaths and hospitalizations down. But there becomes a point when mass vaccination uh, becomes unsustainable. It becomes an imposition. It, there comes at a cost as well, particularly if the government insists on so funding a mass testing regime across the country as well. And this is a resource argument, I would argue. And if you know, we can't simply be, for the rest of our lives, be putting um, vaccines into the arm of everybody in the country. For, 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 for most people, COVID, particularly, for example, the new variant so far, has been, is a comparatively mild illness. Yes, there is yeah, a case, yeah. I think, for vaccinating annually uh, the most vulnerable people in society as well, in the same way that the flu vaccine operates. But we can't continue to live with mass vaccinations as the alternative to simply a lockdown. This is this is why at some point we have to adjust to simply living with the risk of the virus in wider society. Yes. So we have to hope that Omicron is is the, the variant we all want, which is virulent. So most people will get it, but actually relatively mild, um, which means, you know, fingers crossed, that that could be the beginning of the of the end. Um, let's turn our attention to, to another thing. I mean, the New Year, um, plenty of, of crises, though, that are still carrying on. And one of them is the uh, extraordinary rising cost of um, energy. Um, Martin Lewis, um, who founded Money Saving Expert, was quoted as saying the other day that, um, you know, significant number of families are going to have a choice soon between heating or eating. I mean, that's a pretty appalling isn't it so what if anything can the government do given that many people are saying that the government is actually partly responsible for some at least of the rising cost of energy i mean we're not the only country facing this problem um no. it's it's worldwide but but part of it uh, is due to government policies so the, the, the story behind this is that the headline rate of inflation is projected to increase to nearly 6% this year by the Bank of England and by the um, Office for Fiscal Responsibility. 
one of the things that this is going to have a marked impact on is partly driven by a record increase in energy prices, particularly driven by the fact that European countries are seeing a restriction in gas supplies moving in from Russia. The UK has comparatively less uh, natural gas storage compared to the other countries around Europe as well. But Russia has apparently um, redirected a lot of the flow of gas eastwards mm. rather than uh, westwards into continental Europe. And there's a lot of tension too over the new pipeline that is being built and could potentially be vetoed by Germany's new government. For the UK, though, because we have moved away from coal uh, to largely rely on um, uh natural gas is our main source of low carbon electricity because don't forget at the moment the, the government's push on coal has been largely driven by particularly imported natural gas we're very vulnerable to things like price shocks which has meant the wholesale price of energy has been rising for a long time now uh, the the government's energy market as it has chosen to pursue it has been uh, allowing for a number of companies to grow up and for competition essentially to be the name of the, the games arguing that if you don't like the cost of energy you can always switch but equally it, it imposed a few years ago under Theresa May's government a price cap meaning that governments could not charge sorry energy companies could not charge more than a set uh, annual limit set by the energy market regulator Ofgem now as wholesale prices have risen many companies have had to raise their uh, variable tariffs to reach the price cap but cannot go above that because and they're still selling essentially energy to consumers at a loss because of the sheer increase in energy wholesale prices particularly gas what this has meant is that a lot of the smaller companies have gone bust pushing a lot of consumers over to variable tariffs uh in larger providers who could soak up more of the cost the price cap is due to be reviewed again in april and people like Martin Lewis argue that annual energy bills for some people could rise to up to £2,000, which is a mind-boggling mm. number. Yes. Um, now, one could look back at some mistakes made in the past, possibly. I mean, Centrica had this um, gas storage facility under um, the North Sea. It was off Yorkshire called Rough, I think, which they just reckoned wasn't worth keeping open. And the government looked in this and decided that wasn't any point that they seemed to be thinking that you could always work on the just in time thing that there would always be natural gas that you could import whatever the time whereas most of our continental neighbors had quite a significant proportion of their gas supplies in storage which which helps to smooth out um price rises and stops you making me so dependent on um sources like russia and elsewhere yeah. Yes, and energy security is something that is a very important component, particularly given the fact that the UK has left the uh, the EU's energy single market. We're resetting our relationship with the world, and countries like Russia can use their energy reserves as a form of geopolitical influence as well. But the more mm. practical concern is this forms part of what is going to be a difficult year for Boris Johnson's government in terms of cost of living. As I mentioned earlier, there's a significant tax rise coming in. For many people as well, we're expecting a, for example, many companies are planning to 
raise prices by up to say five percent to account for the mm. higher rate of inflation inflation is running a nearly a decade high as well. well well yes if you look at if you look at the input costs of businesses those are far far higher than what we see cpi being and of course we have this weird thing that rpi is no longer um, an an index that is used for anything except things we have to pay the government for mm. and whereas cpi is running at 5.1 um uh, RPI, the old-fashioned index that most people sort of think actually does affect their cost of living, is 7.1 at the moment back in November. Um, so you're talking about the projections of inflation being 6% for the Bank of England, but the Bank of England seems to be behind the curve on all of this. Yeah. So this could be an incredibly difficult year. Um, obviously, there are many statisticians and economists are still saying it may be a temporary blip, but I think there's a good deal of scepticism. And blip or not, people are going to be paying a lot more for many more things. I saw an article this morning saying how much more people are paying per week for their just simply for their groceries now. Mm. And this price rise across the board, I think, is something that really takes the impression if you, you combine uh, an energy crisis mm. with rising cost of living. This really does take you back to arguably the Heath government of the 1970s in terms of perceptions here. And this is why this is going to be a difficult year for Boris Johnson's government as well. And don't forget, there's also a lot of unresolved issues with Brexit, which are exacerbating mm -hmm. problems too. There are reasons to be optimistic. The UK has come through the pandemic with a comparatively robust economic recovery. But don't forget that, as has been the case since 2010, our overall economic position has remained comparatively fragile and whilst growth economic growth headline growth was projected to return to strong levels in the longer term growth is looking around sort of one to two percent which is quite anemic and a lot lower than other comparable yeah. g7 countries and again this also masks the fact that a lot of problems with uh, the government's brexit deal still exist there's still a very real risk for example of not just problems with Northern Ireland, but the uh, trade and cooperation agreement the government reached with the EU last year falling through and having a no deal in that capacity as well. But all of this, I think, could combine to create a sense of a government that is in office but not in power. Mm -hmm. And again, this goes back in my mind. I keep being drawn back to historical parallels again and again in my head. Is this like the, you know, the, the end of the, um, the, 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 the Churchill, Eden, Macmillan government? Of the 1960s or is this something is this comparable to john major uh, around the erm in 1992 or but again i keep coming back to 1974 and edward heath, and edward heath because you have a conservative government there that um is pursuing policies that seem to be going from one issue to the next and the labor party that if it is going to take power might be able to only do so in a hung parliament so we could be looking at short-term political instability as well. It might be that history has no guide for us in this mm. in this comparison. But Tory governments have been in this situation before, and for a fourth-term government to be facing uh, headline cost of living rise is something that will affect a lot of people as well. It doesn't matter how much more money they've put into the national living wage, or even if they cut things like VAT on energy bills, which is only 5%, that's mm. still like a tiny drop in the open ocean. The big issue comes is that will the Chancellor put his hand in his pocket and ensure that there are more generous subsidies available, particularly for those people who are worse off. Mm. Uh, Mike, let's uh, take another pause for breath and change subject. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
This is Simon Rhodes. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with uh, political commentator Mike Indian. Um, we're going to talk lastly about um, the uh, knighthood for Tony Blair, um, Order of the, the Garter. Um, the words arise, Sir Tony Blair, or Sir Anthony Blair, I suppose, um, not met with universal approval across the country. Although no. I suppose it, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the past, I mean, prime ministers would tend to get... Um, a gong once they left office, wouldn't they? Prime Minister used to get a peerage once they left office. Margaret Thatcher was made a baroness and she sat mm-hmm. in the Lords until she died in 2013. So Prime Minister's receiving honours is nothing new. Uh, John Major was the last Prime Minister to, before that to receive a uh, an honour. He received a knighthood. There's been a lot of debate around Tony Blair. He, he is undoubtedly a, a consequential but controversial figure. I think there are, you can see this by the fact that 700,000 people have signed a petition calling for the knighthood to be removed. The interesting thing is that the, the, the Order of the Garter is bestowed upon the personal choice of the Queen. There's been an interesting speculation that she refused to do this while the Duke of Edinburgh was still alive. But one of the things I think we have to say is, and this is looking at um, both the government and Keir Starmer's response, is that they recognise that actually the Blair government in itself, the governments he led, did have a transformative effect on society. Yes, there were mistakes made, but the same reason that there are many people who enjoy a great deal of freedoms. Uh, for example, if you're a gay person, you have a lot of freedoms that were introduced by the Blair government. That was pointed out by Peter Kyle, who is a uh, Labour MP. Unfortunately, as with any sort of political honour, it's going to come with some controversy. I would say that actually it feels right to recognise former prime ministers for the service they have done, particularly one like Tony Blair, who's his longer serving. Don't forget, the comparative uh, equivalent would be Margaret Thatcher getting a peerage. Tony Blair doesn't have any political influence from this. He isn't in the House of Lords. Mm. He's received a title that doesn't really come with any degree of responsibility. It comes with a great deal of esteem, but he, he doesn't have the right to sit in Parliament or to make legislation as well. And to be honest, I feel comfortable with that because in that sense i think that if people run a government there are pressures and other things to consider i i would for example have my own views about whether the david cameron would qualify for a knighthood as well uh, but the, the, the then we get into political territory there mm. as well so i think it's only for, if the trade-off is that we're not going to award prime ministers automatic seats in the house of lords which bear in mind a lot of members of their cabinet do get and i think that there's a case to be argued for that, but they're not getting any political influence. Then giving them a knighthood, giving them a damehood, in the case of Theresa May, seems to be a comparatively sensible mm. middle way option. It doesn't endorse everything they did in office, but it does recognise that for a period of time, this person led a government that steered the country in a particular direction. Most of the projections seem to be coming from the left wing of the Labour Party. Why does Blair still cause them so much anger well, you know it, it's quite a while ago now I, I i suspect that you tony the shadow that tony blair casts over the labor party is is mainly because after 12 years in opposition and four election defeats there is a big debate around uh, for this we have to look to the speech Keir Starmer gave the week we're recording this where he focused on for example patriotism and some of the core values which is what blair did to take his party into government and for a party that that, that has the um, 
the, the, the sheer number of failures that Labour have had to win elections, they would be silly to ignore and not sell three general election victories in the same way that Margaret Thatcher cast a long shadow, still does over the Conservatives mm. as well. The only the difference is, is that the Tory party learned to love Thatcher because they recognised how successful she had been in retrospect. Labour applauded Blair when he left the stage, but since then they have vilified him. Now, some of this is justified. I think the way that he sometimes conducts himself, particularly in terms of going around the world, making a lot of money, advising foreign governments, hasn't always been good. He is keen to rehabilitate himself. I think he's flattered by a lot of people saying he should come back into public office because he's he's by far and away the weightiest figure still alive who's been a prime minister. I mean, no disrespect to John Major, but I don't think there is anything in that set um, to really match him. And, and I think only Gordon Brown compares in terms of intellectual and political weight of the former prime ministers or indeed even the current one. I'm not making, making a party political point there. The other side of this has to be though that Labour is not comfortable with the direction it went in under Blair particularly from the left and they want to win from the left as well but they've had their chance under Corbyn and they haven't had that to capitalise on it. Blair won three elections the Blair government transformed this country in many ways in many ways a highly successful government yes controversial at times and that deserves to be recognised for the man who led that government for 10 years to Labour to three election victories. Mm. Mike, thank you very much indeed. That's our first conversation of the new year. But Mike Indian, uh, author of the Groucho Tendency blog, will be back um, fortnightly to talk to me about the bigger picture. The bigger picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.